I'm glad you're here this morning. We've reached the end of what in our Bibles we call 1 Samuel. You know that in the original Hebrew there was no 1 Samuel and 2 Samuel, it was just Samuel. In our division though, it's a natural breaking point because the last chapter in the book is 1 Samuel 31 and it'll be our text for today. 1 Samuel chapter 31. It is the account of the death of the king, the death of King Saul. It is brief, it is factual, and it is moving. It tells us quite simply in today's text that Saul dies. He dies by suicide. It is the tragic ending to a tragic life. As a preacher, of course, my primary concern when you come to a text, and I've been wrestling all week long with this, is what on earth is there to say about this? The king is dead. Saul's body is desecrated and parts are thrown into a pagan temple. It's a tragic end to a tragic life and the whole time you're thinking what might have been. What is there to say? So I thought maybe the thing to say is Chuck's going to come and lead us in a time of invitation and I surrender Saul. I, 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 something. No, we can't do that for some. Some of you, oh, there was a brief moment of hope for some of you. <laughs> but you can't tackle, when you, when you got to tackle a text like this, uh, uh, we can go to the New Testament for at least some reassurance that we're on the right track. Look at Romans 15.4. In Romans 15.4, New Testament, Paul is thinking about all the Old Testament scriptures. He's thinking about 1 Samuel, for example. And here's what he said. For whatever was written in former days. Now this is Paul. He's writing Romans. He's writing the New Testament. So he's looking back at the Older Testament. He's saying whatever was written in the Old Testament, why was it written? It was written, he says, for our instruction that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. Now that gives me enough faith, that gives me enough encouragement to go forward and to, and to, and to, and to go into 1 Samuel 31 and say that somewhere in here we're going to find something for our instruction. It's going to give us endurance. Endurance is the, uh, the, 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 the what it takes to make you quit point gets pushed out further makes it just for a little bit harder for you to quit and ultimately gives us encouragement and hope so that's our mission that's my mission I hope you come with me first Samuel 31 we're on a hunt for some hope in this dreadful chapter First Samuel 31, uh, there's lots of darkness, and in the midst of this darkness, we've got to find it. I've broken the darkness down into three sections. The first is, if you're a note taker, the darkness of being overtaken. The darkness of being overtaken. Uh, verse 1 of 1 Samuel 31 dumps the bad news on the reader right away and does it in a very matter-of-fact way. It's the darkness of being overtaken. Look at verse 1. Now the Philistines were fighting against Israel, and the men of Israel fled before the Philistines and fell slain on Mount Gilboa. This phrase, now the Philistines, remember, this is the Hebrew way of saying we now return chronologically to what is happening in the battle between Israel and the Philistines. Okay, some of you, like me, are old enough to remember a time before everything on television wasn't on demand. 
you do realize there's an entire generation that will never appreciate the fact that there was a day when you just had to watch whatever the network said you had to watch right then. You do realize that is unheard of by an entire generation. Can you imagine? I try to explain this to my kids. Can you imagine you're sitting there as a kid? I don't even like ALF. Yeah, but it's Thursday night, so ALF is what you get. Okay? So my point is, if you were into a really good television show, it was such heartbreak. There was no TiVo. There was no DVR. There was no figuring out what happened. It was heartbreak when the networks would break in and say, we interrupt this broadcast. And you're going, no. I'll have no idea to figure out what happens. Who shot JR? Who knows? So it was a great relief when they said, we now return to your regularly scheduled programming already in progress. For those of you who've been following along in 1 Samuel, do you remember a few chapters ago, the Bible showed us what? The armies were lined up. Then we interrupt this battle to show you, uh, that's what's going on with David. Then we interrupt the battle to show you what's going on with Saul. On his last night on earth, he consults this occult medium. And then, he show, and then the Bible shows us David's great, Ziklag, uh, great victory at Ziklag over the Amalekites. And all this is going on when he went all Liam Neeson and took everybody back that was taken. And now, verse 1 is saying, and now we now return to the battle of Gilboa already in progress. Does that make sense? All this has been going on and now we return. The Bible gives us the headline as it so often does and then fills in the details. And verse 1 is clear. The arm, this is a rout. Uh, the, the men of Israel were fighting the Philistines who had chariots, and chariots would do better on flat ground. And so they flee to go up to the foothills of Mount Gilboa. They try to get in the mountains because there at least the Philistines lose the advantage of the uh, 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 chariot units. But it's too late. And then we find out this dreadful news in verse 2. And the Philistines overtook. That's why I'm calling it the darkness of being overtaken. The Philistines overtook Saul and his sons And the Philistines struck down Jonathan and Abinadab and Malchishua, the sons of Saul. We learn that one one son escaped, but not these three. Now that image of being overtaken, it is painful to think about because I think that there are some of you who can relate. Oh, you've never been on literal Mount Geboa in a literal battle, but you have been in a place in your life, or maybe you're here right now, where you're running from something and you feel like it has overtaken you. Some of you have fought addictions for so long and you've been running, but it feels like the enemy overtakes you. Or you've been fighting for your marriage and you've prayed and you've tried, but you've got to a point where you're just exhausted. That's why the enemies were, over to ta- were able to overtake these sons of Saul. They were just exhausted. The enemy overtook. I, I know people in crisis, in relationships, where they just get to a point of exhaustion and it feels like the enemy overtakes them. Maybe you fought as hard as you could to save that job or to get your finances under control, but bankruptcy overtook you. Or you have nights where you battle depression and anxiety, and it feels like you can, you can stay away. Sometimes you can stay ahead of it, but other times it feels like the enemy just overtakes you. Or maybe you've had the loss of a loved one, and that grief just overtakes you. The darkness feels so real. Now, why is this in the Bible? Remember Romans 15. It was written for our instruction encouragement, hope. So where is the instruction, encouragement, and hope from a Philistine army overtaking these sons of Saul? Well, it may not be much, but I see a little glimmer, a little glimmer of hope, a little glimmer of encouragement 
in that first reported casualty, a name we've come to know and love as we've been through 1 Samuel, Jonathan, faithful son, covenant friend to David, in the midst of all this hopeless tragedy, where was Jonathan? Right where he was supposed to be, fighting beside Saul. He remained his whole life long faithful to the post God had called him to. He remained a true friend of David. Here he sacrificed his life for Saul. The image here is that these sons were sort of the last line of defense. Go, go, save yourself, Saul. Go, get to the top of Mount Gilboa while they fought off at the cost of their life. You know, the kingdom, think about it. He had given up the kingdom. The kingdom theoretically would have come to Jonathan. Look, kingship back then was not a democracy. There wasn't a peaceful transfer of power. The king was going to be whoever the king's son was. This was a logical choice. It was going to come to Jonathan. But for Jonathan, the kingdom was not something to seize. It was something to serve. Dale Ralph Davis says, maybe a tragic life isn't tragic if it's lived in faithfulness to what Christ asks of us in the circumstances he gives us. After all, what's tragic about remaining faithfully in the calling God's assigned us? Was it tragic when Jonathan, I love this line, laid aside a kingdom he could not have to enter a kingdom he could not lose? So the encouragement, if there's any encouragement and hope in all this, it would be this. And this is what you'd want to say to King Saul, if you could, in the midst of all your darkness. And to anybody here who's going through a dark time, this would be the encouragement. This would be the hope. To anyone who'd say, I feel the darkness being overtaken. To anyone in that place, in the midst of all your darkness, look around. God's put a Jonathan in your life. There's somebody in your life, in the midst of all your darkness, there's somebody who hadn't given up on you. Now, that doesn't mean you got people in your life who always think you're right or who always approve of what you did. Jonathan didn't approve of what Saul did. Jonathan didn't condone Saul's actions, but he didn't leave him when things got messy. He didn't run away. He never gave up on the man Saul. I don't know if you could call that full-blown hope, but at least it's a little light in the darkness. And for anybody who feels overtaken, I want you to think about that. Isn't it true there's someone in your life who hasn't given up on you. Well, let's go on to verse three, and I'm calling this section the darkness of a hard heart. The darkness of a hard heart. Saul, unfortunately, we've seen for many chapters now, he is simply at a place where his heart has grown hard toward God because of one thing, bitterness. He has allowed the root of bitterness to grow to the point of envy and jealousy and resentment. Here God is pouring out blessings on David, and he could have been a mentor to David. You you look at Saul, and you keep going, what might have been? But that bitterness grew, and when it became full-grown, he was at a place of great hardness of heart toward God. And that's what makes these verses all the more sad. So the darkness of being overtaken, the best I can tell you is, in the midst of all your darkness, there's somebody who hadn't given up on you in your family, in your life. The darkness of a, of a hard heart, well, verse 3, the battle pressed hard against Saul and the archers found him, and he was badly wounded by the archers. Can you imagine the scene? The army is dead. Jonathan and his sons, at the cost of their own lives, have bought Saul enough time to get out of the reach of the chariots. But even though they're out of the reach of the chariots, they're not out of reach of the, uh, the, the, the long-range attack of the archers. 
And at first, you can imagine the, the arrows begin coming in. It says he's badly pressed. The battle pressed hard. You can imagine at first his armor begins to deflect some of the arrows. That same armor that he tried to get David to wear way back in chapter 17 makes another appearance. It deflects a few, but eventually one gets through. And then another. And he knows that pulling the arrow out will do more harm than leaving it in. So to relieve some of the weight, he breaks it off. And as the blood flows, listen, Saul is a seasoned warrior. He has stood beside many dying men. He knows what he's seeing here. He knows this is a mortal wound. There's no recovery for this. And so verse 4, Saul said to his armor bearer, draw your sword and thrust me through with it, lest these uncircumcised come and thrust me through and mistreat me. With his last dying breath, Saul is barking out one final order to his armor bearer. He knows the end is here. He's going to die either way. But he knows the Philistines will capture him and torture him. And out of this fear and out of this uh, uh, desire to avoid the shame, he said, I, I would rather die by your hands. I'd rather you in my life then fall into the hands and be captured by this Philistine army. But what does his armor bearer do? (laughs) But his armor bearer would not, for he feared greatly. You know, Saul, it's amazing. He keeps surrounding himself with these armor bearers. If we were to ask the class, okay, class, who was Saul's first armor bearer? And one bright shining star would raise their hand. We'd say, yes. Say, I know. That was David. That's exactly right. And how would David have reacted if Saul had said, go ahead, run me through, it's over for me. What would David have done? We've seen what David would do. David's like, I'm not going to touch the Lord's anointed. And sure enough, we have the same thing here. And out of fear, this armor bearer won't do it. And therefore, we have the saddest possible ending. Therefore, Saul took his own sword and fell upon it. You know, there's layers to that verse In doing so, there's a sense in which Saul only did in death what he had been doing for the last 20 years of his life. He'd been taking his life in his own hands. He'd been leaving aside God. He'd been leaving God out of his equation. He'd not been inquiring of the Lord. He'd not been consulting the Lord. He'd been taking matters into his own hands. And so it is fitting that at the end here, he takes his life in his own hands one last time. And when his armor bearer saw that Saul was dead, he also fell upon his sword and died with him. Verse 6 slows the narrative down. Thus Saul died, and his three sons, and his armor bearer, and all his men, on the same day, together. You hear that repetition like a drumbeat. The narrator is trying to slow things down. Why? Because he wants us to pause and really consider the death of Saul. He doesn't say... And then Saul died, which means here's another fact in the narrative. He says, thus Saul died. This is how it happened. Ponder, consider. I think the writer wants us to pause and notice not what's here, but what's not here. And what's not here, what's not here? What is missing in this narrative? Here Saul comes to the end, and it's not what Saul says, his last order to the armor bearer, and then he takes his life in his own hand. It's not what Saul says. It's what Saul doesn't say. Where? Show me. Where's the crying out? To God. Where's the preparing to meet God? You want to you read this? You want to say, Saul, give me something. Even, even Christ from the cross. The, the, David, Saul's 
predecessor would say in Psalm 22, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? The true and better David, of course, said that from the cross. But at least there's a crying out to God. Here, there's none of that. He never seemed to do the one thing. You know, there was a judgment against him 20 years ago. Samuel said, the kingdom's going to be taken from you, given to another. First Chronicles 10 sort of tells the same story and adds a couple interesting details. And it talks about that judgment. And you think, well, if that judgment comes, do the thing you're supposed to do. Repent. Humble yourself. Saul's resentment and bitterness took him down. His jealousy drove him deeper and deeper. And it was pride. It was all those things wrapped up. The resentment and insecurity and bitterness when he looked at David. So, so that, watch this, so that when he needed to repent, he could not. All the way until his last night on earth, he spent turned for guidance to a satanic occult ritual in the form of the medium at Endor instead of repenting and crying out to God. Now, I've said this before, let me reiterate. You want to say to Saul, repent before it's too late. It didn't have to end this way. And two weeks ago when I preached on Saul, I raised the question and then dodged my own question. I raised the question, is it possible to get to a point of no return? Like, is it possible to get to a point where you can no longer even hear the effective call to repent? Can your heart get so hardened that, that, that you reach a point of no return? We say God can forgive and God can reach you, but, but is it possible that you can no longer hear? I told you that if you asked that question, I told you what my answer would be. And it still is. My answer is, I don't know, but let's not find out. Let's not find out. Let's pray that our friends and our loved ones and even our enemies, let's pray that no one ever has to find out. Repent before it's too late. But here, I've been thinking about that answer, and let me add another sort of angle to this. <clears throat> Don't always assume that you'll have the same desire to repent that you do now. Let me say that again. Don't always assume in the future, if you hear the Lord calling you to action, don't always assume that you'll have the same desire to repent that you have now. You know, uh, 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 I, I can get right with the Lord later, that kind of thinking. Well, the old-time revivalists would say, well, what if there is no later? In other words, what if, what if, what if you're... What if you're, you die in a car accident on the way home from this revival or something? And then there's a measure of truth to that, and they're right, but there's more. I would put it this way. Even if there is a later, who'll say that you'll even want to repent then? See, I think Saul came to a point where he didn't repent because he had no desire to repent at that point. His heart had grown so hard. So theoretically, yes, he could have repented, theoretically, but he had lost all desire to repent. When it comes to bitterness, I want you to think about where that can take you. The original story of bitterness, you might say, goes back to Genesis 4, Cain and Abel. Do you remember this? Cain was bitter toward Abel. He resented Abel. And God tells him, listen, if you do right, won't you be accepted? What do you have to be bitter? But he says, listen, sin, he says, is crouching at your door. The word crouching there is the image of a, of a, of a jungle cat ready to spring. Sin is crouching at your door, but you must master it. You must overcome it. So, this darkness of a hard heart. Is there any glimmer of light here? Where's the instruction and encouragement? Well, it's not much, but the glimmer of hope I see in this passage right here in this section, I'd say is that armor bearer. In the midst of all your darkness... That armor bearer still wouldn't give up on Saul, would he? 
And amidst all that darkness, that armor bearer is going, whoa, 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 as long as you're breathing, hey, man, maybe we can make it to Mount Gilboa. Maybe you can get right with God. Maybe forget if we die on the field of battle. Maybe you can die on the field of battle. And at the last minute, like the dying thief on the cross, remember the thief on the cross? At the last minute, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Maybe Saul can have a, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Remember me when I come into your kingdom. So I'm not going to end it. Even in the midst of all that darkness, he had somebody who wouldn't give up on him, a co-laborer, a fellow kingdom soldier a fellow warrior. So the hope is, in the midst of all your darkness, you've got somebody in your life who hadn't given up on you. There's Jonathan. There's that armor bearer. All right, finally, the darkness of overwhelming evil. The darkness of overwhelming evil. What do you do with verse 7? The death of Saul becomes a tragedy for all Israel. That's always true, by the way. That it, it seemed, it, Strike the shepherd and the sheep will scatter. Verse 7, when the men of Israel who were on the other side of the valley and those beyond the Jordan saw that the men of Israel had fled, that's the army, and that Saul and his sons were dead, they abandoned their cities and fled. And y'all, the Philistines came and lived in them. Oh, think of all that is lost. Ironically, this defeat brings Israel back to the sorry state they were in. Remember, they were always getting beat up by the Philistines, and the Philistines were living in their cities. And that's what started this whole thing. You remember what they cried out? Remember what they said would save us? You know what remember? They said, if we had a king like all the other earthly nations, then we'd be out of this mess. Well, here you go. There's your king. Behold your king. God tells the prophet Samuel, listen, let them have their king. I'm telling you, don't take it personally. Samuel's like, I'm a prophet. I've been leading you basically like a judge. I know I'm in the wrong book. That was earlier, but I'm a judge. I'm one of sort of. And, 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 and you want to, what do you mean you want an earthly king? God's like, do not take it personal. This is not between you and them. This is between them and me. It's they haven't rejected you. Remember this? They've rejected me as their king. So let them have their king. But they're going to cry out and they're going to realize that's the king they wanted. That's not the king they needed. And sure enough, The irony is almost unbearable. They they got exactly what they wanted, and their king has led them to a place where they are worse off than when they started. Now, I don't want to linger too long on this point because I think it's a bit of an aside, but I see a spiritual principle at work in verse 7, and here it is. When the people of God abandon the cities and flee, they do not remain empty. Let me say it again. When a vacuum is created, when the people of God abandon the cities and flee, They do not remain empty. The enemies of God come in and make themselves at home. Have you ever heard the phrase, nature abhors a vacuum? Do you know that? It's absolutely spiritually true. It works both inwardly and outwardly. Let me explain. If we take this as an image, if you take God's word out of your heart, if you lay out a church, if you take God's word out of your mind, if you begin to sort of switch off and turn off meditating on God's word and filling your life with God's word and being in God's presence and worshiping God and praising God, if you do that, your mind and your heart do not just remain empty. It's not empty for long because the enemies of God are waiting to come and take up residence. You see? That's why I was so happy when I got the... Uh, Sunday school report, you know, we look at the, the, the numbers each week, and last week in Sunday school, we saw numbers that we haven't seen since pre-COVID. Hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people in Sunday school. We had 400 people there on Wednesday night, the Bible studies and the children and youth programs. Why? Well, that tells me that you get 
you get this. You get this spiritual principle. You, you realize, you have the, the maturity and the thoughtfulness to say, wait a minute, if I'm not filling my mind and my heart with God, it's not just going to remain empty this week. Something or someone's going to fill it. The throne of your life will always be occupied. And if it's not occupied by the Lord Jesus, it will be occupied by self or worse. If my kids, right, if my kids are not filling their hearts and minds with God's word, I've said it so many times, the world is perfectly happy to disciple your child. They would love nothing more like Philistines rushing in and filling the cities of God's people. But it works outwardly too. Um, What do I mean by that? Uh, When all God's people abandon the cities, then the enemies of God come and rush and live in. I I don't know how to say that. uh, Christians, yes, they need to be thoughtful about the company they keep. Yes. But if Christians retreat from every part of society, then the enemies of God are then free to fill all of that with no restraint. You know, I I tried years and years ago in New York, I was uh, uh, trying to counsel a young woman in our church. She had great gifts and she was working in the fashion district of New York City and she had gotten an internship at one of these big fashion magazines. Uh, You'd probably know the magazine. You see it on on your way out of the uh, supermarket and she's on a fast track in the world of fashion and she was a strong Christian and she said, I can't take it. I can't take it. Every day, so much worldliness, so much uh, Everything that I'm against as a Christian, that's what this world is for. I'm going to quit and I want to go to Liberty University and just start enrolling in a Christian school. And I heard her whole case, and I said, um, you know, I I get it. You know, if God's calling you, who am I to stand your way? But I said, would you just consider, would you just consider that God wants a witness everywhere? And if you assault and light, leave. I know it's wicked. I know it's worldly. But if, if 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 you leave, and I get it. There's wise reasons. There's great discernment that must be used here. Everybody hear me say that? But if you withdraw completely, then, then where's the witness in that world? And the, the enemies of God are happy to move in and to, and to fill it. That's why I think God, I say that to be an encouragement to anybody who feels like, my work is so ungodly. Well, then maybe that's why God has you there. Well, I, I tell you, there's no light where I am. You're the light of the world. Well, I, I, you know, to, to, to youth who think, well, I got, the, I got the wrong teacher. Well, maybe you got the wrong class or the, you didn't get the sc- class schedule you want. Or I didn't get into the right college. I'm over, whoa. Maybe you didn't get it from your perspective. But what it, could it, God wants a witness everywhere. One of my uh, mentors long ago, he said that uh, uh, Peter struck the right ear of Malchus in the garden. Do you remember this? When they came to arrest Jesus, he strikes him and cuts his ear off. Malchus, he's the high priest's servant. And he says that uh, he thinks that's because uh, the Lord Jesus wants a witness everywhere, even in the halls of the high priest who called for his crucifixion. So that every time, can you imagine? Every time the high priest asked for a cup of tea, every time he had to stare Malchus right there, he could see the evidence of God's work right in front of him. God had a witness right there. In the, uh, you don't believe in the power of God? Here he is. He said at some point, don't you think the high priest said, Malchus, when you approach me, could you come from the right side? Because there's the evidence staring him right in the face. Christians are the evidence of God's glory right there. Anyway, it's a side note, I suppose, but I think an important one that 
that, that Christians need to be thoughtful in the way we engage, but we must engage. The, to, to, to flee just leaves the uh, enemies of God to take over. Okay, could it get worse? Yes. Verse eight, the next day when the Philistines came to strip the slain, they found Saul and his three sons fallen on Mount Gilboa. Of course, the enemy would go through the battlefield, gather the spoils of war, and when they come to Saul and the sons, what a trophy that would be. So they cut off his head, stripped off his armor, sent messengers throughout the land of the Philistines to carry the good news to the house of their idols and to the people. You see, of course, a twisted perversion of the gospel good news. We get the word good news, we get, that's where we get the word gospel. It is a day of Philistine gospel, messengers going forth. And I guarantee not a single Philistine was ashamed of the gospel that day, were they? No. First Chronicles 10, which tells the same story, adds one little extra detail. Not only did they parade the mangled, disgraced body of Saul and his sons, but they, the First Chronicles 10 said they took the head of Saul and put it in the temple of Dagon. Now, I'm testing you here a little bit, but how many of you remember way back in chapter 5? I mean, that's like late May. Way back in chapter 5, Dagon's temple. Remember this? They put the captured Ark of the Covenant in the temple of Dagon. And what happened? They woke up the next morning. Dagon had bowed down, and his head, the head of this idol, had fallen off. So now you see, this is shots fired. You see what they're doing. They're saying, hey, you think you, you took the head of our idol? We took the head of your king. So it's natural. They put the head of the king of Saul in Dagon and say, now who's lost their head? Hmm? It's trash talk. Who's laughing now? All you Israelites, you laughed and laughed when you heard that Dagon lost his head. Who's laughing now? For them it was proof that their gods were more powerful than Yahweh. The God of the Israelites must be dead. This is the Philistine gospel. It's the gospel of Saul's death. The day there was a gospel in the land of the, of the Philistines. Well, they hung his body in shame to publicly let the world know. Verse 10, they put his armor in the temple of Asheroth and they fastened his body to the wall of Beth Shan. The humiliation could hardly be more complete. It was just a great day to be a Philistine. John Woodhouse has a quote, the Philistine gospel is still to be heard wherever human beings believe they've triumphed over God. Every mockery of God and his people, every expression of scorn toward the Lord Jesus and his followers is a version of the Philistine gospel. It seems the evil is simply overwhelming. So, is there any instruction? Is there any encouragement? Is there any hope? Well, it's not much. Uh, look what happens in verse 11. But when the inhabitants of Jabesh Gilead heard what the Philistines had done to Saul. Now, who are they? Jabesh Gilead. I'm, I'm hoping that for somebody, it's like, that sounds familiar. I've read that. It's, it's either Star Wars or Lord of the Rings, or, or was it, you remember it, from way back in chapter 11 of 1 Samuel, there was a wicked Ammonite king named Nahash, and Nahash tells this little tribe of Israelites from Jabesh Gilead, he says, I'm going to completely kill every last one of you, man, woman, child, unless you completely surrender me and become slaves. And here's how we're going to know you've completely surrendered to me. Every man in Jabesh Gilead must gouge out his right eye and present it to me. And at, at the price of the right eye of every man in Jabesh Gilead, I'll let you live. Otherwise, you're going to be maimed slaves of mine. 
and they said, give us seven days to think about it. The fact that they had to think about it tells you, right, how desperate it was. And they said, we've got seven days. If no hero shows up in these seven days, we're done for, and this is what's going to happen. And you remember who got word of it? The brand new anointed king of Israel. He was head and shoulders taller than everybody else. And he comes riding in over those hills with the cavalry. And he, what does he do? He says, hey, let's go. And it's none other than King Saul. In his first and probably greatest moment as king, he rides out to meet that challenge. And he defeats Nahash and all those Ammonites. And there's a great victory. And Jabesh Gilead never forgot that. And so when they heard, all the valiant men arose and went out, went out, went all night and took the body of Saul and the bodies of his sons from the wall of Beth Shan, and they came to Jabesh and burned them there. And they took their bones and buried them under the tamarisk tree. You see how the, the, all the threads are being pulled together. Saul used to hold court with his spear in his hand, surrounded by his power under the tamarisk tree. Now, Bones buried under the tamarisk tree in Jabesh and fasted for seven days. They sat shiva, which is their custom. At great personal cost, they gave Saul a proper burial. They never forgot what Saul did for them. And it was the least they could do to repay. Now, where's the instruction and encouragement? Well, it's not much. But if you look at the men of Jabesh Gilead, I see a glimmer of hope here. And you can probably guess what it is. It's this. In the midst of all your darkness... You've got somebody in your life who hadn't given up on you. Look, Saul's got old friends, those old friends from Jabesh Gilead. In the midst of all Saul's going through, you want to say, man, there's somebody who hadn't given up on you. For you look at Jonathan fighting with him to the end. You look at that armor bearer, and you look at these men from Jabesh Gilead, and you have to think, in the midst of all this darkness, whatever you're going through, somebody in your life hadn't given up on you. God has given you a family member, maybe, like Jonathan, who's never given up on you and won't will. Uh, God has given you maybe a fellow soldier, a, a fellow church member, an armor bearer who hasn't given up on you and never will. Maybe God's given you an old friend, like Jabesh Gilead, who still remembers the best about Saul and hadn't given up on him. Now, I've come to the end of this message, and if you say, preacher, that's just it. You're missing the point. I got nobody that's the point. I appreciate what you're trying to do, find some encouragement and hope here, but I'm worse off than Saul. I got nobody. I got no family member. I got no armor bearer. I got no old friends. I'm utterly alone. Is there a word for me? I mean, do I even have a prayer? Yes, but it's not my prayer. It's a prayer that takes us all the way back to the very first sermon in the First Samuel series. On May 1st, we started with a sermon called Tears in the Tabernacle, and it was about a barren woman named Hannah who prayed. And in chapter two, she prays this magnificent prayer, and she concludes by saying, the adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces. Against them he will thunder in heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. And he did, he judged Saul, no question. But he will give strength to his king and exalt the power of his anointed. So in other words, what's happening here, the hope is not so much in this chapter of Samuel, but in zooming out, you say, wait a minute, wait a minute. 
Saul is clearly telling us it is futile to put our faith and trust in a human being like Saul. So instead, we've got to look for the one to come. And the obvious one to come was David. But David, we're going to see in 2 Samuel, David also failed. David also died. So Israel's hope, the hope of all mankind, is not in this frail human power of any earthly king. And yet, and yet Hannah's words say he'll give strength to his king and exalt the power of his anointed. Well, if, well, if it's not Saul and it's not David, haven't I said week after week in 1 Samuel, every page of this seems to whisper the name of Jesus, the true and better king. I know it's not Advent yet, but if it were, I'd love to hear an Advent hymn right now. Come thou long expected Jesus, born to set thy people free. From our fears and sins release us. Let us put our hope in thee. So you see in this dark chapter, when there seems to be no hope, I want you to see it. Look, look at the parallels. Saul was defeated by his enemies. He was the anointed of God. A thousand years later, it looked like the anointed of God, Jesus, was defeated by his enemies. Saul was handed over to the nations to be abused. So was Jesus of Nazareth. Saul's body was hung as a public object of horror and disgust. They nailed him outside the city to lift him up. Our Lord Jesus was nailed on a tree outside the city to be a public object of horror and disgust. And just as the good news rang out through the demonic halls of Dagon and Asheroth, so too on that dreadful Good Friday did a howl go up from the pits of hell at the war they'd thought they'd won. But just like in Saul's case, and just like in Jesus' case, there was someone who came and cared for that body. And at great personal risk, the men of Jabesh Gilead took Saul's body down. Joseph of Arimathea took Jesus' body down. But unlike Saul, slain on Mount Gilboa, and bones buried under a tamarisk tree, the true and better King Jesus would be raised to life on Easter Sunday morning. Just like that praying woman Hannah said, exalted as Lord and Christ. And forevermore, there is a true gospel that answers the false gospel of the Philistines. The false gospel of the Philistines is darkness. The true gospel is, in the midst of all that darkness, you got somebody who hadn't given up on you. You say, yeah, but I don't have a Jonathan. I don't have an armor bearer. I don't have a Jabesh Gilead old friend. Then look to Calvary's cross. And there... Stretched out on that cross is the friend who will never leave you nor forsake you and who will not give up on you. You say, how do I know? Because that's the point. He endured the scorn of the cross. He endured the cross. If the cross didn't make him give up on you, what will? Nothing. In the midst of all your darkness, you got someone in your life who hasn't given up on you. So take encouragement, take hope. He's a risen King Jesus. He's a faithful friend forever, and you're not going to make it without him. The good news is you don't have to. This king will never fail you. This King Jesus will never die. Long live the king. Let's pray. God, I pray for anyone who feels like giving up that today would be a day that grace upon grace 
washes over them. That this ancient prayer of this sweet saint, Hannah, still speaks a word of truth over your church today. You will give strength to your anointed. You will give power to your true and better king who is coming. I have no idea if Hannah even knew what she was praying, if she knew all that that would mean. But I pray thanking you that you've given us some Jonathans in our lives. You've given us some armor bearers. You've given us some old friends, loyal friends. But more than that, you've you've given us your own son, Jesus, who while we were still sinners, died for us in our place and for our salvation. So grant, just like Romans 15 says you'll do, grant us instruction, encouragement, endurance, and hope from these things that were written in former times. Do it for your glory and for our good, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.